three, two, one. Alexander Robbins. Hello, sir. Hi, Lauren. How's it going? Oh, it's so nice to have my buddy Alex from Blue Maid on the Ponytail Show because you know everything about everything and I'm excited to talk to you today about linen and about the aesthetics of worn clothing because well, that's, that's very thing. flattering because I only know about linen and the aesthetics of worn clothing. Well, I'm glad I'm glad I have you on for that then because like yeah, that would be a disaster if if you didn't know anything about it. <laughs> but for yeah. for folks out there who um who don't know who you are, I'm just going to give them a little rundown. So, Alex, you are one half of Blue Maid, who is that's an independent brand from New York who make beautiful things from linen, all the linens. And like I met you um, a few years ago now um, in New York for at, at at a trade show, and yeah, we seem to have a we seem to have quite a few friends in common and we just hit it off like like Crash Bandicoot and pals. <laughs> <laughs> that was exactly the video game reference I was going to go for. Yeah, I thought so. Thank you for for knowing that that was like I like I I grew up on PlayStation One and like that was like one of the weird like obscure video games that my sister and I used to play, Crash Team Racing, uh, which was basically Mario Kart but like Crash Bandicoot. Um, but actually, not as good, right? But better, <laughs> not oh, as better. good. Let's better, <laughs> better, better. I meant better. <laughs> um. So yeah, like. Do you want to expound on on Blue Maid and what you're about? Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, you gave a great description. So I'm one half, I and my wife, we started Blue Maid. Uh, and a lot of it had to do with trying to find increasingly better textiles in a, uh, both as consumers and then as designers, because we just were not seeing them out on the market. Um, and our search for better and better uh, textiles definitely led us to linen and then trying to find what the best type of linen is. And once we opened up that, you know, Pandora's box, we've never gone back because linen is just such an amazing fabric with all of these properties of breathing well, being hypoallergenic, just feeling amazing. Mm. Uh, and it has this wonderful history it's also as a maker it has this wonderful um structural functionality so you can do a lot with it anyway we just once once we started to realize the options there we never turned back and i will say even personally now i have a hard time not wearing linen mm. on a daily basis it's almost like my skin craves the feeling of it mm. um so all of this combines to being like we we wanted to create a brand that gave us the freedom and the ability to find the best kind of textiles to make the kind of clothing we would want to wear out of those textiles and keep it as simple as that. Yeah. Like yeah. good ingredients, simple cuts, uh, and just the joy of having a, a fabulous textile next to your body. Yeah. Isn't that like, you know, such a formula for all good things in life. It's like good ingredients, good good makings and then you know it's like good things in life are not 
too complicated in my opinion but but there's so much riffraff out there that it's hard to like weed out the riffraff and really focus on beautiful good things um my experience with linen it really comes from like nine you know 19th century French linen workwear pieces you know having lived in France and and digging a lot in in France and all around Europe um definitely like you know those beautiful um linen aprons and linen um bedwear and um linen workwear even German World War II rucksacks um with that hardy kind of linen blend um you know plain weave fabrics that they're constructed in um yeah linen has such a beautiful texture and and quality to it um which brings me to belgium because i know that you source a lot of your linen mainly from belgium which is which seems to be the birthplace of of linen you know at least for for the the region of europe that is like france belgium um but yeah we went on a little road trip up to Kocek, is that what it was called? Kocek? Yeah, absolutely. Kocek. Yeah. Um, which was like kind of like the birthplace of linen. Um, we, we, we drove up to like the very northern part of France and we crossed the border over to Belgium and, and that was where we found all the linen fields and, and the linen museum and we ate linen cheese or flax cheese. It's, true. <laughs> it's so true. That wasn't and your first trip. Like, so tell me like how you kind of boiled down the the you you kind of hunted down the the best linen and what brought you to Belgium absolutely so linen comes from the flax plant and actually flax it can be grown in lots of different climates all over the world and has been growing across Europe for centuries and centuries um there's ample evidence that Alexander the Great's army made their armor out of linen and this was very convenient because you could muster a bunch of farmers from across Europe to go fight in Persia with you. Um, and they could make their own armor by weaving the linen and then gluing it together with rabbit glue. And mm. it was strong enough to block an arrow at that period in history. Whoa. But that's just to say it was abundant. So you can grow it very easily. You can grow it very quickly. Um, and it grows very quickly. It grows in about three months. Um, and then you can, then oh, you wow. have to cross yeah, so it's a very it's, short and that's yeah, go ahead. sorry, I'm gonna cut in. That's that's actually surprising because I knew hemp takes I know hemp takes about three months to grow as well, but I wasn't aware that linen was that fast too. And they're they're cousins in a sense. So they're mm. part of the same type of plant family that creates a bast fiber. So these are all fibers that come from the stalk of a plant. So hemp, uh Flax and rainy is another important one in, mm. in Asia. And all of them require a similar form of processing where you have to break down the, uh, the stalk by mm. fermenting it or putting it in water in a way that it just starts to loosen up and turn into these hair-like fibers. Um, and over the history of, of this, it was found out that certain climates make straighter, stronger, better hair-like fibers. And the really the best climate for that was um, places along the Gulf Stream. So 
Northern Ireland as the winds coming across the Atlantic and then into what was historically Flanders, but which is now Belgium, part of the Netherlands and France, um, that sort of area where the Atlantic winds just come in, created the best, tallest, strongest, straightest types of fibers, which then, you know, when it's taller, longer, straighter, makes it so much easier to weave. It makes it for a tighter weave. So for centuries, uh, because of this environmental condition, Belgium, or should we should say Flanders, became the place to get the finest of linen. Even though you could get linen in other places, um, probably one of the biggest other producing were what it were formerly Russian states, so mm-hmm. Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, major linen production, uh, but never historically at the same level of quality as what was being produced in Belgium. Interesting, and that continues to today. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've, you know, seen linens from all three of those areas that you talked about, you know, Ireland, Belgium, France, and, um, like Poland, you know, like, um, and they all have very different qualities about them, definitely. Um, Irish linen is beautiful as well. Like, it's very expensive, Irish linen, I must say. Um, that's probably more to do with a labor, a cost, like a labor cost issue. Um, but yeah, for sure, the French Belgian linens that I've come across have, well, we went to see, um, one of the factories and like, yeah, there are, they do have a very distinct difference if you, if you're going to get real nerdy about the fabrics. Um, I just, I just, I'm just judging that based on my hand feel, the hand feels of the fabric because I don't like go into, I wouldn't like be knowledgeable enough to like go into the real like micro like microscopic levels of the difference of the fibers but i know you do you have like a special little little instrument that you like to use when you go see your fabric suppliers tell us about that so yeah lauren is talking about what is called a linen scope and it it can be used for any fabric, but it comes from investigating linen fibers. And it really is just a magnifying glass with a, with a light on it. So you can get really close and see how the individual fibers have been twisted in the yarn to see the underlying kinkiness, to see the general sort of, um, especially if there's like flyaways happening in the yarn to see if it was um, spun correctly. So yeah, I, I am happy to get into the, the nitty gritty of the nerdiness and then also the chemistry of how the things are grown. But I think when it, when we sort of talk about quality in general, whatever we find as our final product, if, it, if we're talking about linen, we could also be talking about cotton. Generally, if someone's cutting corners in the process, it reveals itself in the end product. Mm. We might not always be sensitive to know where the corner was cut but you'll, you generally know when you're like wearing a T-shirt that doesn't feel half as good as the T-shirts you had when you were a kid. Mm. Or when this linen is itchy, but you've been told that linen is such a great fabric. Mm. And corners can be cut at lots of different ways in that process. So they can be cut in the original um, growing of it. They can be cut in the um, processing of the cut fiber, then the, the weaving and the sewing. Um, and so I think when we speaking back to those sort of regional differences, mm-hmm. some of that is not um, a difference at the level of the growing of the flax, which would actually mm-hmm. be quite similar. But you can actually have different styles in terms of the weaving. So the, yeah. the Irish weaving style is 
demonstrably different than the Flemish weaving style. Um, and then uh, Italy is also an important player in the sort of general market, but they don't grow very much linen at all. They import almost all the linen from Flanders, but their weaving style is just so much finer. So it's like, yeah. and when you imagine like a man on a yacht wearing a thin white linen shirt, that's the kind like of- Like that finesse, quality. yeah. Exactly. Mm. Um, where the Belgians are doing things like you you were sort of talking about, like they, they still do have a lot of the, the mills there have military contracts. So they they make cots and backpacks that are of this sort of and wonderful. Yeah, and upholstery grass, yeah. a lot of upholstery grade. And heavier, say, bed linens also out of um, mm. that. And then Ireland goes even one step towards the uh, more textured in how they weave. And this is to say, they all, all of these are often using really well-grown, well-woven. It's just a different flavor on how they yeah. do them. Personally, and the way that our company has, has tended to design, we've gone for that middle between the really fine Italian and the really coarse Irish. We've gone for sort of this happy medium of what you get in the Flemish. So Northern France and um, Southern Belgium. Uh, it just, it feels closer to, I think, what a lot of um, cotton canvas weights had, we're familiar with, mm -hmm. um, but it's not. It has all these other amazing properties and it has this great durability and it changes over time and it, your body, it breaks in and conforms to your body in these really beautiful ways. Yeah, I, I can definitely, I definitely associate the linens that you're using with more um, work shirts, workwear. It's got more of a beautiful rustic um, feel to it, um, but not too kind of not too rustic either, because then you'll end up with unwearable, you know, you know, very hard to wear pieces. It's you've found that really nice medium um, in between, which which makes which gives your pieces so much character, and that's why I love your pieces. Like what you're wearing today. What are you wearing today, yeah. actually? Tell me about that. So like I'm saying, I am now, so I'm so engrossed into linen that I feel, it feels weird not to get dressed with linen. So I'm actually wearing, I'm wearing a, a linen undershirt from the Russian military. So this is a vintage piece. Um, and a, a lot of European and, and Russian um, militaries still do do undershirts out of linen. They're great because they're moisture wicking. So if you sweat, it dispels it, whereas cotton just absorbs and holds on to it. Um, I so I love this this shirt. And then the, the outer shirt is a shirt that we designed. I, I, I have to move my technology, my, uh, my microphone. Yeah. Uh, hold on a sec. Let me hope this won't affect the sound. Um, so this is a, an early piece that we designed in, I believe, our 2017 collection. So it's really based off of an old agricultural smock. Mm. So especially Belgian laborers would have had a linen shirt that could have gone over their clothing as a protection because linen is incredibly durable. It was the material used for ship sails for most of the period of European exploration. Mm. Uh, and it also gets stronger when it's wet. Um, but this would be a pretty standard boxy cut with, um, that you wear oversized to protect yourself when you're out in the field. But I just love oversized yeah clothes so like it, it felt even though it has this, its old functional need it felt very easy to transition it to wearing in today yeah. and it's just a such easy layering piece um 
And this and particular hat. oh, sorry. oh, and my hat. So then, this is a this has been something that was, has been a recurrent thing pretty much every season now for us. Um, an all linen baseball cap, which is really just as simple as it comes in terms of linen is breathable, linen is light, and that's exactly what you want in the baseball cap. Um, and we wanted to make sure it was just that, so we don't put any plastic or cardboard mm. into the the brim it's just all fabric um and just you know i it's it's like we were talking about before i don't think we need to do much to improve on this and um so i've been wearing this now for three years or so and i love you know how it just it feels right on my head it just slips right on i love Um, the length of the brim oh yeah so i mean there's definitely there's a vintage reference going yeah. on there um and you know i think about old fishing hats and the americana surrounding the transition from baseball hats to sort of sportsman hats so those were in the background as we were designing on these you know and this is you know the tricky part about design while things are simple you still have to make a ton of decisions yeah um and to maintain the simplicity often requires a lot of work um but yeah, so but definitely Americana vintage references were the were a big part of this. And then rem- there's that some- long brim actually reminds me of the um, that heritage the Quaker caps. I don't know if you've ever seen them before, but the Quaker hats, caps have really long brims, and like that's what that's what make them really you know unique. But that's that the length of your cap is kind of in between like a classic baseball cap and the Quaker which I like a lot and it was you know it's it's that's the main that's one of the main factors like we we <laughs> my inclination is actually to go longer um but my better half Lily my co-designer and co-partner and everything she's like you would never wear that down the street <laughs> what really <laughs> but she's she's right. I think we That's were always true. we're always looking for that balance between something and it's it's a delicate balance between vintage as costume and vintage as something usable for today. Yeah. It's and like you guys are like yin and yang. The two yeah, of you but make harmony, make good decisions. Exactly. Ta-da. Yeah. In the form of linen caps. Yeah. But this is been a really um, successful piece for us. It's gotten a lot of press. It got picked up by the New York Times. Amazing. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's uh, and we just try to keep it as pure as possible. Good linen, simple cut, done. Yeah, that's all you need. Beautiful. Well, that's a nice transition now, talking about linen to the aesthetics of worn clothing because they they do definitely have a long time relationship together and like i you know coming from from looking at like vintage and looking at beautiful old linen pieces linen workwear you know worn falling apart linen that's been repaired by hand and darned and you know that is the beautiful aesthetic that I find about about linen products. And I think you can talk about this a lot because I'm sure that's what made you fall in love with linen as well. Yeah, I definitely. I think the first 
pieces that really caught my eye were, you know, really old, previously worn, weathered in some way linen. And I really have always been attracted to the very narrowly woven um, French linens. So they were probably done on a loom that fit. Exactly, a basic hand loom. Um, and the, the interior designer, Axel Vervoet, often will take those and he'll um, use them to upholster couches and chairs, but he'll use the narrowness so that the seam where the two hand-woven pieces come together runs right through the middle of the chair, mm. so it's very over. And something about just referencing that, this, this history of making, this roughness in the hand, and then bringing that into this new context was, I, it, it so just beautiful. always spoke yeah. incredibly beautiful. And so I, you know, my wife and I, we started collecting our own scraps of old linen, which in the States is much harder to find. Mm-hmm. It's easier to get in Europe and then weirdly even easier to get in Japan because there's been an yeah. interest in collecting textiles. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did what we could um, at like rummage sales and thrift stores here in the U.S. Um, and just started accumulating more and more older pieces of linen, tablecloths, uh, pillowcases, um, very rarely clothing in the United States. They'd have mm. to, they're mostly these home goods. But you could find 19th century pieces, um, sometimes that they were stained, but sometimes that stain itself was part of the appeal. Yeah. Um, and and like you mentioned, repairs. Repairs have always had this like fascination for me, uh, and I think for many people. Yeah. Um, and it there's been a lot of interest. Um, there's been books and museum exhibitions on Japanese boro of the creating of cloth through rags, which I which I very happy to talk about and could talk yeah. about. Yeah. Uh, Let's Nazium. just quickly I, explain explain to folks out there in a little bit more detail what boro is. I mean, yeah, it definitely is creating cloth from rags, but just to, to describe some what some boro pieces might look like, you might be looking at a beautiful indigo, um, you know, an indigo jacket that might be completely looking like patchwork of, of tattered kind of like almost completely corroded bits of fabric on top of each other layered and and hand sewn together and just like just one beautiful kind of patchwork piece of like time and effort made from like discards that's been made into something that looks like a piece of art and it looks like a piece of art in a couple of different ways it looks uh like a well-constructed garment, but it also looks like an abstract geometric composition because mm. there's often contrasting patterns. So you might have had a striped piece of um, rag going up against a like a very deep indigo rag next to one that might have a, um, a different traditional motif on it. And that's all kind of quilted together, not quilted in the process of like putting batting, but, you know, laid out in a, a, as a field of fabric. So it has a conversation even with like the history of abstract painting, the way we talk about composition and form. Mm. There's just so much going on in your average piece of boro. And what's amazing though, is they're not constructed like, you know, an abstract painter who, uh, who would be a good example, like an Ellsworth Kelly series of colored patches or something. 
um, where he sat down to do that. Instead, Boro was like often created by multiple people over multiple years mm. without something like a plan. It's kind of like a multi-generational unconscious composition. And the result of that has this extra magnetism yeah. and quality that I've always been attracted It's almost to. like the result of a collective consciousness, like a collective, like a group, like the this kind of energy flow of, of a group of people rather than like just the intention of one individual, like which is much more beautiful. It's very poetic in a way. It's very poetic. And, and I think, though, there is, it's also worthwhile pausing and also acknowledging that these were these are human artifacts not born out of um, aesthetic leisure or the leisure to make aesthetic objects, but they were really born out of poverty. Mm. Um, and they're out of a context of necessity of making do with what you have. So, you know, even the thread that often binds these pieces together is just thread individually pieced apart from other rags. Mm. And the amount of extra time and labor that had to go into creating these, um, it's complicated, it, it, or I feel weird about it, right? Because we're reveling in the work of the most abject poor, especially in like 19th and early 20th century Japan, uh, without necessarily acknowledging that. Yeah, it, it, I think history, the context definitely always needs to be acknowledged. But I feel like that comes from also a lineage of, um, like, I can draw so many parallels between the culture of Boro from Japan that came from poverty uh, that was definitely utilized during a very poor um, time period. But that comes from, um, you know, China. It comes from, like, ethnic minority groups in China it comes it it appears this principle appears all through Southeast Asia minority groups in Southeast Asia which is like I'm a collector of Southeast Asian textiles and I can tell you like there are so many pieces that have been woven usually are woven over woven for marriage woven for death um, woven over the period of many years and um, you can see that like every every natural resource has been utilized throughout the year the changing seasons there's nothing that goes to waste and and there is like such a beautiful unintentional but intentional process that that happens um you know so i feel like yes maybe um yeah for sure we have to always acknowledge history and context that's like the main thing but Boro came from somewhere like it didn't just yes. pop out you pop up in thin air and perhaps it actually it belies a sort of truism about textiles which is textiles generally hide their context very well because they're a very durable movable um, kind of material so they can move place they can exist through time in a ways where their specific contexts drift away and what you're left with is just the actual material and there's very few things it's like textiles and paper are like these yeah. amazing technological human inventions that do that um yeah. and persist beyond our you know our mortal 
yeah. themselves. Absolutely. In in my collection of Southeast Asian textiles, um, textiles are definitely used to pass down history, pass down stories, teach lessons to adorn, you know, to celebrate marriage and death, um, to show to show us what dye colors, um, you know, exist in nature um, in different parts of the world in different times of the year. Um, they also show us, I have like a beautiful piece from Laos, um, a Hmong piece um, that's fringed with cocoons, like Whoa. little cocoons, there's fringing with beautiful little cocoons. And on that piece, um, the colors change very often because of the different, you know, seasons that the the dye colors were available. So, like, wow. yeah, textiles have so much, you know, these are, we're talking about cultures who have no written, um, written language. So, you know, things are passed down through, you know, cooking, song, um, storytelling, um, textiles, and textiles are so important, you know. But I think there's there's something cultural too about being able to read those textiles. So mm. I I know there are uh, I mean all the examples you gave are are perfect for cultures that can use textiles to reference its own history. But I think we and by we I'm sort of talking about you know the the globalized world of mm. of advanced capitalism where we live in um, we specifically don't read textiles that way mm. and. Um, maybe we could, uh, or maybe that is just too, I mean, uh, the entire industry of fast fashion is based on, you know, not being able to read the origin of where mm. any of that textile or fiber Absolutely. has come from and that it's merely just a sort of a costume reproduction of what might've been on the runway that season. Um, so the, the sort of illegibility of textiles I think is also a major function in our world and it would be it, I think it would be a very different and interesting planet if we all did read textiles yeah um, I think in so. that deeper way yeah I mean this happened with with food in like the early 2000s where we you know the food industry drastically transformed and became much more transparent because we started to ask questions about where our food was coming from. I had hope for this, for the textile, for the fashion industry, like, you know, especially like after the the financial crisis in 2008, there was like a lot of hope that like, you know, there were a lot of beautiful brands popping up, um, you know, very much heritage-focused um you know, brands and they continue to grow, but fast fashion just has grown so much faster and and at such a, you know, such a tidal wave, you know, like yeah. I've heard something crazy. I, don't quote me on this, anyone, but like something like, you know, back in 2005, you know, fast fashion brands were creating something like six collections a year, or maybe four to six collections a year, and now they're producing like up to fifteen collections in one year. It's, it's like if you think about that in the well, span of time, it's ridiculous. It depends on how you want to even define a collection. You know, certain businesses will have weekly deliveries, so you yeah. can have as many as fifty-two Jeez. different design sequences within oh, a whole man. year. So, um, but back to your your analogy of the sort of slow food movement um, and agriculture, 
I think it's a really useful analogy, but that it, it kind of hits a limit um, mm. at the uh, at the level of say agricultural production um, that fast food was really able to get going because um, so many small farmers who were making, who were doing husbandry or doing um, the, the, the fruit and veg, they could link up with chefs in this very intimate way and the scale was manageable and human. But really since, you know, the beginning of the industrial revolution, certainly since the, the middle of the 19th century, textiles has been dominated by cotton and mm -hmm. cotton has been massively industrialized yes. and there isn't there isn't a clear path for how you get your small batch cotton farmer so even if you have designers with the best of intentions when they start going down the supply chain eventually they're going to bump up against a large multinational conglomerate that's yeah. either growing massive fields of cotton in india or central asia um, or massive weaving operations who are vertically integrated with those farms. So the, the sort of open space for a new kind of more human-sized working has never really been able to manifest in the textile mm -hmm. world. Um, and it's unclear what it would take to really make that uh, viable and sustainable. Back to linen, because I like yes. to talk about linen. Um, linen has never truly been industrialized. So that was one of the things that in, um, inclined us to it, uh, to get the really straight, uh, fibers that are preferential for making linen garments. You have to plant them incredibly close together. Um, and, and you'll remember when we went to go see those flax mm. fields, it's just like a dense grass. Yeah. Uh, and what that means is the only way to cultivate them because you need the entire the entire fiber that goes from the roots all the way to the top of the stock is really through hand cultivation. You still have to pull them out of the ground and then you have to lay them out uh, horizontally so that dew will help break down the fibers. So it requires a lot of hand labor, which can't be industrialized easily or quickly. Um, and then it requires a massive amount of um, water and space to really industrialize that on that scale would mean, you know, if you can grow a one acre of uh, vertical grass or flax, mm -hmm. and then you have to lay it out horizontally, it just increases the number of acres you need per, per unit in right. just like exponentially. So that has always been a physical material limit on how much flax can ever be grown uh, really in on the planet because again there's only these select climates where it's yeah. doable and it has to share that with you know she, wool uh, sheep for wool and other farms and so yeah. it's always been this smaller agricultural thing now that isn't to say that there hasn't been um issues in the history of linen and that linen hasn't been free from labor abuses but I think we can safely say, unlike cotton, it was never a major part of the slave trade. It was never, uh, it isn't a current part of child labor like we see going on in the um, Central Asian republics where there's a lot of uh, children being used for pulling cotton. Um, so it's not because I think linen is necessarily more virtuous, but it has, there's something practical or there's some practical limitations built into the materiality of flax and its cultivation that have just kept it as a more human, humane yeah. 
reasonably sized kind of commodity. I think there's like a definitely a definite kind of strong moral to that story is like yet definitely focusing on small batch.、Um, You know, moving forward to 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 kind of have a more sustainable-looking future. I hate that word "sustainable," but it's the word I'm going to use right now.、Um, Go ahead. Yeah, like we can't continue to be to be doing things on such an immense scale that we are doing right now. And and I think talking about cotton is a really important one because,、um, yeah, I mean cotton. You know, even you talked about the slave trade、um, in America, and、um, we can also talk about just quickly the, you know, the British and what they did in India,、um, basically exporting cotton at such a cheap, cheap rate、um, from India and import exporting it back into the UK, where they were spinning and weaving it into beautiful. Cloth and therefore、um, India's economy was suffering. You know the people of India were suffering because their, you know, their commodity, their big commodity, was being exported and woven offshore, and so none of the money was kind of circulating in there. And that's why、um, Gandhi started the Khadi movement,、um, which was a, a cottage industries movement to keep cotton circulate the cotton.、Um, You know the whole process from growing to wove, finished woven fabric within India、um, using cottage industries,、um, but then again that's another case of keeping it small and like building building business and community on this kind of very small scale to to kind of yeah to be more of a sustainable way for people to live and eat and. And and money and 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 you know feed their kids and I think there's also a lot of parallels between the the properties this kind of the limitations of linen in that sense with hemp as well but maybe hemp for a little bit of a different reason because of the taboo kind of、um, you know properties that hemp has often been. Um, mistaken for industrial hemp has been mistaken for with marijuana,、um, but yeah, it's it's been it's there's only thirty countries in the world、um, who are producing industrial hemp, and it is also a very small industry.、Um, and right now, China is like the biggest hemp producer, industrial hemp producer in the world, and most most brands have to rely on、um, China's hemp for many reasons.、Um, But would you say?、Um, so let's get back to. I want to get back to the aesthetics of one clothing and and what that has to do with linen.、Um, let's talk about repairs and fades. Broken linen. I'm I'm interested in broken linen. Actually, tell me about broken linen.、Yeah. So, broken linen is something that I think we think about a lot in our design process. So. When we are thinking about designing a thing, we try to imagine, and we have to imagine,、um, what it will be like in five years, in ten years. What will happen to what we have as a new material as it's broken? So being worn in, worn by the body,、um, conforming to the body. I think the, obviously the best example of talking about breaking in something is like breaking in a shoe,、mm-hmm. where it fights you, it fights you, it fights you. And then all of a sudden, it's the shape of your foot. 
and it feels amazing. amazing. It's your shoe in some fundamental way. And that does happen. I mean, uh, lin uh, leather goods is the best example, but it happens also with linen in mm. um, a more subtle, but is just as a compelling way. So when we are designing, I think we think about like when, 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 especially when we're feeling the new fabric, we're like, how, when we have to imagine how will this break based on our experience of wearing linen over multiple years, will this feel better? Will this start to fray? Will this start to form holes? And so it's this, it's this kind of, uh, it's a really important design exercise that we engage in where we think about how an object is going to decline and that we think about the decline as part of the original design. Um, and there's like, uh, and we, we think about, we found resonance in other forms of creating like um, garden design where you really think about what happens in the winter when mm -hmm. you have dead or dry plants and how do you make your garden beautiful even when they're dead and dry? Yeah. Uh, and that kind of design thinking where you have to engage in this imaginary world of what will happen, how will it happen? But it's not, it's not just like fanciful imagining. It's often based on a certain experience. There's some scientific um, uh, data that can come to play in making smarter evaluations. So it's like a reasoned form of imagination, mm -hmm. but it's so important. Um, and I think it's, that is one of, that's also one of these ways in which like the, the food and the textile analogies diverge because of the temporal thing. Like food is going to last as long as your meal. Um, a good piece of clothing is going to last longer than you. Yeah. And how, how do we responsibly design for not just the whole lifespan of the garment, but the lifespan of the wearer as well? Mm. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it's definitely like I'm sure – most of our listeners, you know, are drawn to this aspect of, of our niche kind of corner of the garment industry where we do consider um, the, the, you know, almost like we design things to be passed down from generation to generation. Um, whereas like we nowadays we live in a culture where, where clothes are not, um, you know, clothes don't represent that. Um, anymore and and also like digging through vintage it's harder and harder to find good vintage nowadays because the things are just we get to a certain point like maybe like from the early 2000s where things just started to go to the shithole <laughs> and like <Yes>. yeah <laughs> things things are just made in awful fabrics and made constructed in the most awful way not thought not thought through in terms of design and um yeah i think i think i hope that you know especially this year people will start to take stock of of what they own and how they consume and why design is such an important aspect of of life even if you're not a creative person oh yeah uh but i think it's also worth acknowledging that's really hard mm. and the cards are stacked against us mm. um i think in general i 
I, I see a sort of inverse flow of responsibility with least responsibility on the end consumer. Mm. Um, so many people, when it comes to everything from what should I have in my closet to recycling, puts a huge amount of um, burden and shame on themselves. But really, the economy is often pre-constructed for them and your options yeah. as an end consumer are so limited. You can't, like, in the United States, and this very well might be true in, in Bangkok as well, you can't go to the grocery store and leave without buying plastic that will probably never be recycled. You just can't do yeah. it. Uh, yeah, and it's impossible. It's impossible. Uh, and that isn't a fa failure of you as an individual. And I feel all too often it ends in the kind of, like, confessional self-abusive politics of like, ah, yeah. I should be doing more. But really, like I say, it's like a cascading of, um, of responsibility going the other direction. So absolutely, if we think about ourselves in as designers, we have a, a, a degree higher responsibility to make objects we want to see in the world to provide them to our retailers and our retailers to the end consumer. But we also have a certain amount of um, our hands tied too. when, like we're talking, when you go back down the supply chain, eventually you might run into the Chinese conglomerates who are producing hemp in, mm. in a completely opaque way. Yes. It might be fine. It might not be fine. Uh, and we are not our own hemp producers. We simply aren't. So we can in some way we more than the end consumer can exert pressure on things like our suppliers um but only to a certain extent yeah and the responsibility actually does land with the people farther down the supply chain people who are going as far back as selling the seed for the cotton that eventually becomes the fast fashion or selling the refined petrol that eventually becomes um, polyester. Mm. And that is probably, it's a complicated interconnection of how does industry relate to the state, relate to international trade, and that the conversation about probably how we get out of this situation involves a lot more policy, mm. a lot more diplomacy, then I feel like the conversation often gets to. Yeah, uh, I feel like especially in American politics, uh, but this is the case for politics all over the world, that lobbyists are way too far involved in in politics um, and and that, you know, what used to be policy that was made to, to be protecting and serving people the people is now being created to protect and serve um corporation which is so part of me is like we can deal we can't quite deal with how to have a responsible closet yet we need to have a responsible politics and economy mm -hmm. and so um whenever i feel caught in these systems, I'm like, okay, how can I fight back against that? And often it is like, in the American context, writing a letter to a politician. Um, mm -hmm. Like one of the big things that happens in the American political cycle is something called the Farm Bill, 
where they set the subsidies for what can and, and can't what will the government will help grow or won't help grow in America. So you, you know, writing to your senator to encourage some form of, say, uh, growing of cotton, not in desert climates, for example. So there's a lot of cultivation. That would be a good of, one because cotton takes a shitload of water to grow. One of the most. And for example, Arizona and Texas, where, where desert climates are the largest producers in the United States. Incredible. Incredible. And yeah, so and, and they were, you know, that was built out because they have ample room and you need a lot of space for industrial cotton. But there's long term environmental impacts on that. Mm. But a lot of that can, you know, I, I while I believe that a lot of these systems have really intract, seemingly intractable momentums, I'm always encouraged by looking at world history and seeing how quickly things actually do change. Yes. Uh, whether it's not like Winston Churchill being born at the height of the British Empire and by the time he dies, it's pretty much just England. Yeah. One lifetime and an entire world order has been shifted. So I don't think any of this is impossible, um, but I think it always requires framing it within the right level of abstraction and generality. Mm. And when we talk about like how can we live better, just us in our daily lives, it often means having to change the corruption and the problems downstream in in incredibly complicated supply chain. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think definitely a sense of responsibility needs to be placed on all of us as individuals, um, you know, and not kind of outsourcing that responsibility to, you know, other entities to make change or make better decisions or push for, you know, better betterness I think and I, I also really appreciated how you brought into the context you brought in the context of how change how fast change can happen within human history because I think for a lot of people right now it can feel very overwhelming to I feel like 2020 has been a very overwhelming year for so many people who feel very helpless um, by the the political system, the medical system, um, by you know the larger powers that 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 are, um, you know, I think we definitely can and need to individually make small impact on every kind of level of that chain. Whether you work in, um, you know. Um, let's say the cotton industry, if you work in a factory, if you, uh, yeah, just, just so many different levels. If you are a small business owner, if you work in a corporation, just every single person needs to be taking responsibility for that. And um, there's definitely hope because, like, you know, I feel like every single generation becomes a little more wise or a little more you know, I have a lot of hope for Gen Z. I think Gen Z are proving to be very compassion, a very compassionate generation. Um, statistically, um, they have an incredible um, way of relating and having empathy, and you know, 
I'm in Thailand right now. The pro-democracy movement is being led by Gen Z, Gen Zers, who are so incredibly, who are definitely very bilingual, very mature and emotionally mature for their young age. You know, young university age right now,、um, pushing for change,、um, relating to each other. You know, there's there is like so much hope. You know.、Um, Don't drown people. Don't don't fall into holes. You know there is good in the in the universe for sure. If we just all kind of like, you know, make the best that we can of it. Well, and I think I mean I, I do generally believe in the strength of the human spirit to change their conditions for the better, but I often. Also, I temper that with this sort of belief that conditions have to be right, and there's a certain amount of chance and just good timing that also comes into social change.、Mm, that、yeah. um, it, it could be something as as simple as the story of Rosa Parks in the U.S. being the right person at the right time to take on segregation on the buses and then segregation in a bigger way, which had been going on for. Decades and really, and you could say it's been going on for centuries.、Um, so there's something, there's this, this, this sometimes sort of unexpected but wonderful meeting of the right time, the right place, and the right person, mixed with、um, having already had the right intentions, ready to take action when that,、mm-hmm. when those, all those pieces come together. Absolutely.、Um, so I think the 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 bigger thing for people who want to be Active or activist on whatever degree of that spectrum you you happen to be is also a degree of patience that、mm-hmm. comes with that hope, waiting for the moments to be right where the conditions really can change. Because、yeah. uh, it's 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 not always when there's a will there's a way, but our world is so big and dynamic and changing that often that way will present itself in unexpected ways, and、yeah. or I should say at unexpected times. Wow! Yeah, well, from going going from linen to the history of textiles and one the aesthetics of one clothing to in the industrialization of of raw materials to politics to philosophy. This was a wonderful little podcast, Alexander Robbins. Thank you so much. It was、so、indeed.、Much. I really enjoyed it. And I was really too sure. To It was. We didn't get to talk about archery, which we had talked about before yeah, the well, podcast. You'll we, have to come we'll back to- on. Yeah, you'll definitely have to come back on to talk about archery because that is another fascinating little topic, friends out there. But I look forward to to that conversation. But for folks out there who want to check out Blue Maid, how can they do that? They can always go to our website, and it's. www.dllueemade.com. Don't forget that second L. And then we're most active on Instagram out of all the social media. So that's at Blue Made with two L's again on Instagram. So yeah, come check us、nice. out. And we're always down to talk about sustainability and textiles. And we can get as nerdy as anybody wants to be. Hell yeah! Well, thanks, Alex. Bye, everybody.